Thanks be to God. Thanks, Diane. Thanks, Ashley, for that prayer. Uh, it is so good to be uh, here worshiping with you today. Uh, if you're joining us online, I haven't met you. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant. Uh, but it's incredible just to have some folks in the room. It is so right that we are worshiping uh, together. This is uh, good for our souls. And, you know, I, I've been preaching the last several weeks uh, just to an empty room with uh, a couple of camera guys and Graham running the control panel. And, you know, Graham will give me an occasional nod. Uh, it makes me feel good. and makes me know he's listening. But um, it's awesome just to have some real folks in the room. This is right. This is good. And just so grateful. Thanks, Ian. I saw that. But so grateful for uh, for you guys coming out. And just want to really, you know, thank you for uh, for those of y'all that are home. Everybody, as we were singing, was was wearing a mask. And this is something obviously we're, we're willing to do to love one another, and also just so that we can continue to meet. Uh, I am uh, very very hopeful. Um, we haven't actually settled a final place yet, as that is difficult in these times, but. Um, very hopeful that we will be expanding this as we get into the month of June. I'm hopeful as soon as June 7th or 14th, we'll be offering a larger, um, uh, well-spaced, but but also safe um, worship environment where more people than, uh, than are able to come to the collective can come. Um, so we, we will hopefully announce that next week or the end of this coming week. Um, so just bear with us on these things, but I'm so glad y'all are here today. Um, it's good to be here on this, uh, Memorial day, uh, weekend as also just one other little reflection before we jump into the text. Um, you know, it, it is, and I just want to say this, it, it is such a great privilege to live in, in a kind of place like the United States where we are free to worship and where we can worship, where we can worship publicly, the Lord, as we see fit, that is an incredible freedom that so often uh, we don't remember. We, we we kind of take for granted. Large parts of the world right now, um, as good as it feels to be together, large parts of the world right now, they, they are totally dependent on worshiping online or something like that because they live in a persecuted area. Christians cannot gather. It would um, put them at much greater risk than uh, Christians gathering because of the coronavirus. Somebody could literally come in and put people to death um, because of um, because of their gathering, because of their convictions. So um, this is a really this is a privilege, uh, just even to come together. And I think even in this kind of coronavirus season, uh, we are reminded of that. Well, I'm really excited about where we're heading today, John chapter one. We're going to be three weeks in John chapter one. This is not kind of a series where we're going through the whole gospel of John right now. We're going to do a chapter at a time, um, kind of here and there for the next several years. So throughout 2020, we'll hit three chapters, probably hit three or four more in 2021. We'll keep chipping away uh, through the years, kind of between other things that we're going to be looking at. But I am really, really excited about uh, jumping in today uh, to this amazing passage that Diane read for us. Richard Feynman was a famous physicist at, um, uh, out at Caltech in California. And he was given credit at Caltech for kind of taking physics from being kind of a boring area of study to uh, being really an exciting area of study. Uh, if you remember taking physics, I, I, I took physics, I thought it was fascinating, just kind of how the world works, how motion works, 
Um, you know, I was talking to Jason Byers about this one time, and, and he said, man, the day in physics class when they told me that if you shoot a gun parallel to the ground, if you shoot a bullet out of a gun parallel to the ground, and then you drop another bullet next to the gun, that those two things will hit each other at this, will hit the ground at the same time, that the velocity has no bearing on gravity. He said, when I heard that, I was blown away, and I became a physics fan for life. Um, but anyway, Feynman. He taught physics, Caltech, and uh, he had he he would always begin his lectures with with what has famously been dubbed Feynman's cataclysmic question, and the question goes like this: If if the whole world was wiped out, right? If everybody was destroyed, all the human race gone, and then after us, there was going to come another group of aliens or people or whatever that would inhabit the earth but you could only leave them one bit of information to understand our planet, understand the world, how it works, right? So everything's been wiped out. Everybody's been wiped out. You can leave one sentence behind. What would you say? Now, Feynman's answer to his own cataclysmic question was this, and it's actually a really helpful sentence. He said, all things are made of atoms, little particles that move around in perpetual motion, attracting each other when they're um, a little distance apart, but repelling upon being squeezed into one another. That was his sentence. And, you know, it kind of feels a little technical, not very poetic, but it, it, it gives you a ton of information, obviously, about understanding the natural world, right? If you can understand kind of how atoms operate, atoms make up everything in the natural world, you can understand a lot about the natural world. So he, he was giving the people that followed him uh, a little bit of a clue. Now, this would be fun to kind of go around and say, what would you say? What, what would your answer to the question be? We're not going to do that today. But I, I do think that this, this passage that we looked at today, John 1, 1 through 18, if, if you were to kind of get rid of all the rest of the Bible or somehow the rest of the Bible were to be destroyed, and you could only really keep one section of Scripture, I think that this is the section you would choose. Obviously, it's a little longer than one sentence. But it's so packed, it's so full uh, with meaning and with value and with life. It tells us so much about humanity. It tells us so much about the nature of God. It actually tells us so much about the rest of the Bible. You, you can kind of springboard from this passage really to the rest of the Bible. You can understand the Old Testament. You can understand the New Testament. You can understand so much of what I believe God wants us to understand. So there's a lot of different directions we could take in looking at this passage today, but there's kind of two big headings that I, I, I guess I want to cover with you and, and, and that I think John wants us to see in this, and that is that Jesus is fully God and also that Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. Now, this was a time, John is writing this at a time, when, when both of these actually were from different groups were hard to accept. The Jewish culture that was around at the time that John was writing to for them to accept the divinity of Jesus was an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, this is a culture that had obviously the utmost respect for the power, the authority, the divine nature of God. And so for them to, to have this concept of the incarnation that we hold to as Christians, that God could become a man, uh, was really just beyond them being able to accept. And so John has a lot of work to do for that community to anchor them in, no, no, Jesus really is fully God, 
But then, of course, the Gnostics around at the time really kind of dismissed the humanity, the, the real humanity of Jesus and the importance uh, of that. So, so John had a lot of work to do here. But let's begin with these two big points. Jesus is fully God. It's important, of course, for John to establish the fullness of the divinity of Christ. It was a question people were asking them then, and it's still a question people ask today. This really hasn't gone away in church history. In fact, it was it was widely debated uh, among even churches, among Christians. I mean, we kind of take that for granted. Most Orthodox Christians that you know would say, would you say, is, is Jesus God? They would say, yes. But, but for a good period of time in church history, that was actually a debated question. Is Jesus fully God? Is he really totally God? Or is he just kind of similar to God? Or is he kind of God-like? Um, this is the, the Nicene Creed that's become so important to so many of us. This actually was written as a response to this question, this whole Council of Nicaea and the creeds that follow were, were creeds that were written to kind of correct the false understanding that Jesus wasn't fully God. That's why in the creed you have, it goes on and on, you know, Jesus was God from God, light from light, very God of very God, right? The, the creed writers here are trying to correct this false notion that Jesus is just like God or, or somewhat similar to God or had some godness in him. But no, they wanted to say, no, he is fully God. He is fully divine. Just as a little aside note, every creed or confession that you know, we've been talking about this, we're, we're writing a little catechism for our children here, and we've kind of read some of the older catechisms. Every catechism, every creed, every confession of the faith is always written in the face of an error, right? As you read a confession, you can kind of figure out what are they trying to warn people against here? What, what error are they trying to correct in this confession uh, faith. And that's certainly true of the Nicene Creed. It's trying to correct this error that Jesus is not fully divine. But that's clearly what John is establishing here in John chapter one. And, and there's a lot of things, a lot of directions I could probably go here, but let me just give you three big thoughts from the passage. The first thing he says that Jesus is eternal in the beginning, right? What does that phrase bring to your mind? In the beginning was the word. Of course, that phrase brings to your mind the creation account. And even a lot of the same language that we see in this passage comes right out of the creation account, the revelation of God, the light of coming from God. In the beginning, before anything was, there was God and Jesus was there. Jesus, the word, the revelation of God was with God from the beginning. And people ask, why does John use this idea of word or logos here? It was the Greek logos. He was the logos of God, the word of God. And, and the idea behind Logos is, is the revelation of, it's, it's the word of. I mean, it, it's a pretty good translation if you think about it. He's, he's revealing God. He is, he is making God known. Jesus, who is God, has made God known from the beginning of time. And it didn't just begin when he was born in Bethlehem. No, he's been around. In the beginning was the word. He is eternal. He has no beginning. Before the beginning, he was you know, this idea of no beginning is a really hard thing for people like us caught within the confines of space and time to really think about. I mean, I remember my father first explained to me that Jesus never began, that God never began. And I was thinking, like, what does that even mean? Like, how can you never begin? How, how is that even possible? How can you just be 
What does that mean? But this eternality, this eternal nature of God, it's part of God's nature. And of course, this is one of the great problems that if, if you're watching, if you're here, you have an atheistic perspective, this is one of the great problems that atheists have. How do you, how do you explain the beginning of the natural world? Has material, have material things always just existed? I mean, that's, you, you kind of have to say that. Or was there some beginning to the material world? Where did the material come from? And even like Richard Dawkins would say, we don't know. We, we're waiting on the Charles Darwin, um, to a new Charles Darwin, if you will, to explain this to us. But I'll tell you where the material world came from. In the beginning of time, God existed. And he created the world. He is beyond time. He is not confined to time. It's very hard for us to understand because we understand everything within space and within time. Describe the world outside of space. You can't do that, right? We, we understand everything happening in a place. There's space and there is time. Everything's happening in a certain order. Everything's happening before or after or then or there. But what if you could actually exist in a place where there was no space and where there was none. Well, this is who God is. He created space. He created time. He, he operates. He exists outside of these things. He is not bound by anything. I love how Francis Schaeffer describes God. He says he's just the God who is there. He's just there. Remember how God describes himself at the burning bush. I am. I am. I exist. God is dependent on no one. He is dependent on nothing. He never has been. He never will be. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has never not been, and he will never not be. He is eternal. But secondly, John anchors this in that he is the creator. He exists outside of creation, and he has created all things. He is, everything is according to him. Again, to quote Francis Schaeffer, regardless of a man's system, he has to live in God's world, right? We're, we're all living in a world that is bound, that is made, that is held together by God. John says, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that has been made. Nothing exists, John says, outside of Christ. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not one square inch in all of existence that does not belong to Jesus. He is the creator of all things. It's all his. Jesus is over all. And this is an incredibly a uh, powerful thought to think about. It's an, it's an incredibly powerful thing to stop and think about the, the divine nature, the divine rule of a creator. If Christ has created all, then he rules over all. You ever stop and think about that, that you, you don't really belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You're not, you don't belong to yourself. Well, why would you ever think that, first of all? We all do. We live these self-determined lives. But where do we even come up with that? You had no, you had nothing to do with your own birth, right? You had nothing to do with the things that you desperately depend on to live, like oxygen, like water. Like, did you create those things? Did you come up with those things? Did you figure that out? Did you put put your mind into being? You were so dependent, and even just in this in this world that we live in, it's so terrifying. Uh, I mean, we could die like 
any second. Uh, we live, this is a scary world, you think about it. You know, yesterday I was out walking a little creek behind our house, and Rainer, my four-year-old, was sitting on this rock. Rainer, my four-year-old, comes up to me, and he says, Daddy, help me. I got to get away from the snake. And I'm thinking, like, what snake? I turn around, and there's a four-foot cottonmouth right behind the rock that I'm sitting on, and Rainer's like, you know, it's as close from him as that direct box is there. And I'm just thinking, like, Rainer could have died. I could have died. Everybody could have died right here. We are so dependent. We are so needy. It is such a fragile world. You know, we, we, people used to have a greater sense of this, you know, back when people would die and when, when children were dying in childbirth all the time, when, um, you know, it was just a scarier world. People were being lost at sea. These bad things were happening, but now we feel so safe. We feel so self-determined. We feel like we're in control of our lives. But listen, we are not in control of our lives. We just act like we are. And this is why, you know, John Calvin once wrote about boiling the whole of Christianity down to kind of one principle, right? What does it really mean to be a principle, to to be a Christian? And Calvin said, you know, just very, very simply, it means to live as if your life is not your own. It's to understand that your life is not your own. It's to understand that your life belongs to God. Now, of course, our life isn't our own, but we, we act like it is. We live as if it is. We fight God for the control of our lives. And really to become a Christian is when you turn the reins of control back over to God. They're his anyway, but it's when you, in your own conscious, in your own heart, turn the reins of control back over to God and say, I can't decide what right and wrong is. Only you know what right and wrong is. And so we live by his word. So we turn the reins of our life back over to God and say, you know, my will for my own life, what does that matter, my will for my life? No, what matters is your will for my life, what you want to do with my life. And so we're on a constant journey of trying to discern what God's will for our life is and how we can please him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to turn the control of our lives back over to God, who is our creator, who is our sustainer, who is above all things. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And if you really come to that place, you can really trust him, that his plans for your life, whether that is to make you rich or poor, to live a long life, to live a short life, his plans are actually good, and they're actually working out the best thing. Jesus is eternal, but he's not just eternal. He's creator over all things. He's over all things. And the incredible mystery of the gospel is that this creator, the one who's called all things into being, would actually enter into his creation, which brings us to the the third little point here under this, this big idea of Jesus is fully God, and that is that Jesus is life. He's not just eternal. He's not just creator. He is life. This is the question that all of us all of us ask this question. You know, you know, maybe some of you that are a little younger, I, I kind of feel like by your 20s, at least probably by your 30s, you know, you ask the question, what, what, was, what is my life? What is my life for? What is, what is it about? What am I supposed to be living for? Why do I exist, right? Now, some of you, you know, maybe something happened in your childhood. A lot of children can escape asking this question. You have a happy childhood. Things are kind of taken care of for you. You just do the next thing. Um, some of you, maybe, maybe when you were a child, something difficult happened. You had a difficult situation to, to maneuver, and it really caused you to ask some deeper questions. But really, you know, by the time you're in your 20s, 30s, 
I think most people start to ask kind of the why question. What, what, is, what am I here for? What am I doing? There's an author I really like. Now, this guy, not a believer. I don't even really recommend him. So this is not a recommendation. Um, but he asked this question really, really well. And it's a guy named David Foster Wallace. And um, he just has a way of writing that's fascinating uh, to me. And, and he basically says, you know, these questions, the, the why questions, why do I exist? What is my life all about? They're hard to ask. They're difficult questions to ask. It's, it's easier just to kind of hum along and, you know, follow your next appetite. Um, he said somewhere, I like this, he says, the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of, feel, of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self, right? Those are motivated. If you just avoid fear, if you can, you know, listen to your anger and just continue to worship yourself, all these things, they'll keep you humming along. They'll keep you making decisions and you'll never really ask the why question. He says, our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to all be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. You know, he says, that's what, if, you, if you're not careful, if you just kind of keep following your impulses, your, your goal for your existence will be to be the Lord of your own skull-sized kingdom, to just be free and to kind of do whatever you want to do, just to be comfortable, safe from fear. But is that what life is? Is that your life? Is that, is that who you are? And, you know, and I think a lot of people, if they have to be honest, the answer is, yeah, I've just kind of hummed along, avoiding fear, pursuing comfort, trying to have some control, trying to have some kind of happiness. But what John is saying here is he says, that's not life. That's not life. Jesus is life. Don't you see how small that is? Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Jesus is all of life. He created all things. He knows all things. He has power over all things. And he's entered into his creation to show us what life really is. In him is life. And this life is the light to all men. We are not in darkness anymore, John is saying. We don't have to ask this question and wonder what life is all about now. We can actually know what our lives are all about. We can actually know what is good and right and whole. The life of Christ is light to all men. It is light to us. This is, again, this is not just how John begins. This is how Hebrews begins. The book of Hebrews says, not long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. So God has revealed himself. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, Jesus, whom he's appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It's the same kind of language. Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for our sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, becoming much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has made himself known in Christ. He's really made himself known. He's made himself known by the prophets, by his word. But now we see the exact imprint of God. Same kind of beginning in John, in 1 John, the, 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 the epistle that this same gospel writer wrote. The, the life... The life of God was made manifest 
and we have seen it. Jesus is life, and in him was light, light to everyone. Now, this, of course, kind of moves me. This is a good transition point in the next big point here. First point, Jesus is fully God. But second point, Jesus is fully man. The, the, the fullness of God has been made fully manifest among us in Jesus, the man, Jesus, the person, the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus is fully man. And again, we see this throughout the text. Verse 14, one of the most astounding texts in all of the Bible. The word, this word, this fully divine God has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now we, we could talk about the incarnation all day. It's, it's the greatest miracle that's ever happened. How could God become a man? What does that even mean? How is that even possible? And I, I've talked to you a lot, if you've been around, just about how God has veiled, Jesus has veiled his divinity with humanity. He is fully God and fully human, but he veils his divinity with flesh um, so that he lives as a human, he breathes as a human, he worked as a human, he was tempted as a human, he was fully human. But there's an interesting word here in um, verse 14 that I want to think about with you today. It's akinosin. It's the word that's translated dwelt. A more precise translation for this word would be tabernacled. Hear that? Tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. And, and I think John is using this akinosin language because in an intentional way, he, he wanted the people to see something. The word God has tabernacled among us. Now, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle was kind of a tent-like temple. Before they built the temple, the Spirit of God dwelt among the people of Israel in the tabernacle, in the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this amazing place. It was this holy place on earth, where, where literally heaven and earth met. That's how, that's, how it, that's how the temple or the tabernacle should be understood. This, this one little, um, you know, if you will, I'm trying to think of the word here, kind of, you know, warp zone, if you will, where, where you can meet with God. It's this special kind of place. It's this, it's this special kind of hole in the world where, where heaven and earth came together, where the presence of God. So if you were in the tabernacle, you, you, you weren't, you were kind of in heaven and you were kind of on earth, right? You weren't fully in heaven, right? But you were in the presence of God, but you weren't fully on earth either because you were in the presence of God. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. It was incredibly important. Of course, in the holy place, in the temple, only the high priest could go one day a year. But what is this saying here? It's saying the tabernacle is has come. This, this movable temple has come to be with us. Jesus has tabernacled among us. Jesus has dwelt with us. And again, we see this throughout the New Testament. This over and over and over again, these New Testament authors are wanting us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these images that we saw in the Old Testament. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of the lamb. He's the true priest. He's the true prophet. He's the true king. He is the true people of God that have been called out of Egypt. He is the true vine. He is the true bread, the true light. He is the true temple. He's the true tabernacle. Now, we have a preaching meeting uh, every Wednesday. We talk about the sermon Ed Butler came this week and just had some great insight on the passage. He just talked about what, what happens in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, the glory of God is known, right? In the tabernacle, God dwells among his people. In the tabernacle, God meets with people. In the tabernacle, God communicates with people. And what do we see in Christ? This is the very same things. In, in him, the, the glory was known. In him, God has made himself known. He's communicated. Jesus has dwelt among us. He's tabernacling among us. He's meeting with man. The very kind of things that we see in the tabernacle, we see in Jesus. Jesus is fully man. He has become flesh. He has tabernacled among us. But more than that, God has made him knowable. Jesus is both flesh, but he is also incredibly knowable. In Christ, God is not such a mystery. He's not so ethereal. We can know him. You know, I loved the testimony that, that Hallie Lavasseur made. Uh, it came to faith in Christ. She was baptized just this fall in our church. Wonderful young woman. And, you know, I remember we had a conversation at first Sunday, and I just said, hey, Hallie, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to know the Lord? And she just said, I read the Gospel of John, and I fell in love with Jesus. And I love what she said. He, she said he was so knowable. I love this. She said he was so nonchalant. Like, I think she was expecting this kind of mythical figure, this kind of, you know, huge thing that you can't really get your hands around, but, but it's, he's just a man. He, he's not some cloud that appears. He's not some, you know, giant in the sky. He's just a guy. He tabernacled among us. This is God living among, among us in this knowable way. Again, it's, it, this is the miracle of Christianity. That's hard to believe that God could be so knowable, that God could be so close, so known. You know, Christianity is this kind of perfect blend of Western and Eastern thought. Um, you know, the, the West, in the West, we love kind of these big, like, philosophical abstracts, right? Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, these guys helped us understand kind of the idea of form, right? You may remember learning about this in school, like you have a chair, but behind the chair is the form, chairness, right? It's this idea, the ideal of a chair, right? So all the chair is not really real. What's real is chairness, this, this form that exists, right? So that's kind of Western thought. Eastern thought is not concerned about the form. Eastern thought is concerned about the event, the thing, right? And so if you said, for example, to somebody in Israel, among a Jewish person, if you said, when were you saved? When did salvation come? You know what they would say? They would say, when we crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. We would say, tell me about sacrifice. And they would say, here is a lamb. This is the sacrificial lamb. You said, where is God? They would say, 
in the temple, right? They, they, they're very concerned with the actual event, the actual place, the actual thing. They're more concerned with the chair than the form. But in the West, we're more concerned with the form than we are with the chair. But in Christianity, it's this beautiful blend of both things. It's something I love about it. Even in this text, we see this. John begins with all this like big huge language. In the beginning was the word. It's this great, the Western readers are like, oh man, this is awesome. The word, you know, light, light, life. Oh man, I love this. And then he kind of dive bombs. Interesting. Look at verse one through five. He's talking about all these big kind of ideas. And then he says, but there was a guy named John the Baptist in verse six. And let me tell you about this. And if you're a Western reader like us, you're like, whoa, why are we talking about John the Baptist here? We're talking about forms. We're talking about lights. We're talking about word. We're talking about these big ideas. But you see what the gospel writer John is doing? I love this. He's anchoring in. It's not that there was just salvation and revelation, these big things out there. No, it actually happened in history. And there was a real man, John the Baptist, that gave witness to these things. And we could actually know that light has come because it's anchored in real events that really happened. We actually know what life is now because Jesus really lived on the earth and walked around and John and other people gave witness to this. We see the same kind of thing in verse 15. We have big verse 14, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling tabernacle among us. We've seen his glory, glory from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then of course, and John, here's John the Baptist again, bore witness about him and cried out about him in a real time, in a real space. I love this about our faith, right? It so grabs the, the best of Eastern thought and the best of Western thought. It says, look, you can really know this. It really happened in an event, but, it, but the event points to something so much greater than that. Now, here's what's interesting. If you think about the passage here and the knowability of Christ, verse four, let's go back to verse four. It says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, I was talking to Rainer, my four-year-old, the one that almost got killed by the snake, um, about stars. We were talking about stars the other day. And, I mean, Rainer's four, okay? We, we went to the Biltmore house uh, right around Christmas break. You know, ever been to the Biltmore, America's largest house? Vanderbilt family, very impressive. And we're, we're out there at night. This was last week. We went up to this little uh, farmhouse last week, and we we're looking at the stars. And I was like, Rainer, you know these stars are huge. And his question was, are they bigger than the Biltmore? You know, like, <laughs> is it possible that that little dot could be bigger than this huge house that took me, like, all day to walk around? And I was like, yeah, they're bigger than the Biltmore. <laughs> like, they're really, really big. And, and of course, for me, I was trying to explain to him, you know, how big the earth was. And I mean, the, you know, if the earth is this big, then the sun is this big. And, you know, give all these things, which, of course, he, he, I kind of lost him at that point. But just it's amazing to think about a star. You know, a lot of the stars that we look at, a lot of the stars that we look at are 15 to 20 light years away. But some of the stars that you see at night, the farthest one is 16,000 light years away. Just think about this. Light travels around the earth almost two times 
in one second, okay? Light can make it around the earth almost, you know, 15,000 miles short of two times in one second, and it takes 16,000 years for that photon of light to get from that star here. And, and here's just the thing. Think about how much darkness that photon had to travel through in the 16 light years that it was traveling, and yet you can still see it. That's the, that's the image John's trying to give here. Darkness. There's a lot of darkness in space. It can't overcome light. You can still see the stars. And, you know, even if in this room, if, if it was totally dark in here and we were to light one match or just turn on one little light, you know what? We would all know it, right? Immediately, you would know that a light had come on in this room. And here's what's interesting about this text. Why do we need John? If light has come into the world, light, the light of men, why do we need verse 6? Why do you need John to tell us about it, right? And, and here's the thing. I think this is important for us to think about, just in terms of thinking about God's grace. If a light comes on in a totally dark room, everybody in the room recognizes that a light has come on except for the people in the room who are blind. If you're blind and a light comes on in the room, you don't know. And, and I think that's why we need John. <laughs> that's why we need a witness. Our hearts are darkened to this, right? The, the God of this world has blinded our eyes. We, we struggle so to see and to believe in Jesus. That's why we need John. That's why we need one another to, to, to kind of remind us, hey, open your eyes. A light is on. Light has come to this dark place. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, so often Jesus is not obvious to us, even though he should be. He is light. We need a witness. We need somebody to shake us sometimes. You know, we need somebody to come to us and say, hey, look at the light. And this is true before you become a Christian, right? You, 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 so many of you remember who that person was to you. I mean, for me, it was my dad. He just said, hey, look at the light. You understand this? You understand through the light. You understand through the light. But you know what? I need this. I need this right now. This is why we need to be together. This is why, you know, just if, if you're watching at home, like, you know, good Christian content is good, but we need people that really know our souls and can come around us and say, hey, look at the light. Look at the light. It's there. Don't you see it? Don't you experience it? Behold it. Look to him. This is what John does here. He shakes the people, if you will, and says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the man. He is your salvation. And what this light does is he shows us the fullness of God. Now, here's the deal. If you start to see the fullness of God, it's hard. Seeing the fullness of God, I mean, what are we even talking about here? It will melt you. It will blow you away. How, how, 
How could we see the fullness of God? There is so much truth. There is so much power. There is so much light in God. It will blow you away. You will feel crushed. You will never approach God if you really understand how true he is and how full he is. But that's why this passage is so wonderful. Jesus has made the fullness of God known. But I love this. Verse 16, he says, And from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Oh, I love this passage. You know, I, I've shared this before, but I always think of this passage in terms of the waves. A couple of years ago, I, um, um, or this is many years ago now, uh, I was with Brett Pennington and Andrew Duhon, members of Christ's Covenant. We were on a little guy's trip and we went down on this big hike in Peru and we had a day to kill in Lima. Peru on the way out of town or out, way out of the country. And uh, we had a day to kill and we were right there on the beach, right in Lima. And we said, you know, we need to go surfing. I'd been surfing like one time and thought I was awesome. And, um, you know, we were all from Alabama, not known for surf skills. But anyway, uh, we, 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 had, we found this guy, his name was Manuel. And, uh, uh, we, you know, he said, I can take y'all surfing. He said, you know, it'll cost whatever it was, you know, cheap, 20 bucks for an hour. And we were like, an hour? Like, we're going to need at least like three or four hours of surfing. And so, but this was like real surfing, right? So I'd been at like some dinky little beaches. This was like real big waves. And so we get out there, we get our boards. We're ready for three or four hours. And if you ever go surfing on like a real beach, with real big waves. I mean, just to get out beyond the waves, you're gonna actually try to catch the waves is like the most exhausting thing ever. And so after about 45 minutes, I'm saying like 45 minutes, I, all three of us are literally passed out on the beach saying, please, no more, no more surfing. And, and the reason was is because the waves were overwhelming. I mean, it's just as soon as one wave comes, there's another wave that comes. And there's another wave that comes. And, you know, F.F. Bruce, when he was talking about this passage, talked about it in this way, grace upon grace, as the waves crash on the shore, such is the grace of our Lord Jesus. If you, if you face the fullness of God, it'll blow you away. You have no standing before God. You will run and hide unless, 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 you believe that this same God who is true and full is also gracious and graces in such a way that his grace is as consistent as the waves on the shore. And just as one comes and washes you, there's another one right behind it. And there's another one right behind it. And there's another one right behind it. This is the grace of our Lord. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And you won't really see Jesus until you see both the fullness of his truth and the fullness of his grace. I love talking about this, and some of y'all may have heard me say this before, but you have this great parallel story at the end of the ministry of Jesus between Judas, who obviously betrayed Jesus, and Peter, who denied Jesus terribly, okay? Let's not let Peter off the hook here. In Jesus's moment of greatest need, after he said, even if all these other guys leave you, I will not. This is the guy that three times with loud cursing is denying his Lord, okay? Judas who betrayed Jesus, Peter who betrayed and denied Jesus. What you don't think about is 
they both experienced some repentance. They, they both came in contact enough with the truthfulness of Christ to experience some repentance. Peter, obviously the cock crowed three times, remember this? And he was broken over that. Judas, though, when he heard that his Lord was going to be put to death, he also was broken. You remember this? He returned the silver. But he was so broken. He, he, he came in contact with the fullness of Christ and, and he came in contact with his own sin. He was so broken in that that he couldn't face life anymore. And he wouldn't kill himself. Peter, however, went on to be the rock of the church, the, this great leader, this, this person that God used in extraordinary ways for his kingdom. They both sin. They both are broken over their sin. One can't overcome the brokenness. One goes on to do great things for the Lord. What's the difference? And the difference is this. They both understood the fullness of Jesus' truth, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his display of God. But Peter understood the fullness of his grace. And he understood that this, the, the very Jesus that I have sinned against, the very Jesus that I have broken his heart, I can actually run to. I can actually cling to. I can actually go to him with, that, with all that I am. I think it's interesting. <clears throat> Read your Bible. Where, what do you find Peter doing every time after the resurrection? What do you see Peter doing? What is Peter doing? And you know the answer is? He's running to wherever Jesus is. Wherever Jesus is, Peter is running there. Every scene. John 21, he jumps off the boat and swims to shore. He runs to the tomb. He's always running. Wherever Jesus is, Peter is running there, even though he has horribly denied him. You see, this is a man, and I just want to say this, this is a man who's seen Jesus. And I don't know where you are, but this is what it means to see Jesus. When you can both see him for all of his fullness, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his truth, the fullness of his glory, but also for the fullness of his grace. And you can see that in his fullness, there is grace upon grace upon grace for you. And you can actually run back to the very God that you have offended in your sin and receive from him greater grace than you will from anyone else. That's what it means to see the fullness of Christ and to realize that his fullness has been made manifest among us. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray today that as we think about the fullness of Christ's divinity and the fullness of Christ's humanity, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the fullness of Christ. That we wouldn't just see his truth. We wouldn't just see how strong he is and that he is the one who's in authority of all things. I pray that we would see those things and that we would rightly fear Christ. But Father, I pray also that we, realizing his grace, the grace that he displayed for us fully on the cross, I pray, Father, that we, like Peter, would run to him, that we would realize that in Jesus there is grace upon grace upon grace. As consistent as the waves are on the shore is the grace of Christ. Open our eyes to this, Lord. Help us to believe, help us to look, help us to trust in Jesus, to anchor our lives in him. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, we're going to end our service today with just a time.
response. And I just want to encourage you to respond. There's a few different ways to respond. Um, first, there's a connect card right underneath the YouTube little label that you're watching or the YouTube channel. Fill that out. Give us some information. I will personally get in touch with you and would love that. You can also meet me in the uh, virtual lounge right after the service. You can um, get on Zoom with me and I'd love to talk to you about these things. And the other way you can respond, I really encourage you to do this, is through our text a pastor line. I think we may have a slide uh, with that coming up, but, but I, I do encourage you, 404-465-1737. Uh, those texts will come to me. They are anonymous though, so I, I won't know who you are unless you actually tell me who you are. Um, but I'd love to hear from you um, and uh, we can start a conversation. I'd love to pray with you and love to get to know you in this way. But I do encourage you to respond to these things that we have heard and to respond now as we sing.